Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Peter Masurlian and Michelle Sandiford. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, did agencies forget how to prevent fraud during pandemic relief? Plus, a handful of companies get an attaboy from the Secretary of State. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, Congress is once again looking to make changes to federal benefits in several different ways. Improving death benefits and making changes to catch-up contributions are two goals of lawmakers this year. And there's much more that's still on the table. Here with the details is Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, welcome. Thanks for having me, Eric. Of course, of course. So there are several different bills still on the table this fall. Let's go through a few of them. One is called the Federal Retirement Fairness Act. What would this do and who would that impact? So that bill would specifically target the retirement benefits for former seasonal and temporary federal employees who convert to full-time federal employment. So think about people like wildland firefighters and park rangers. These are people who just work for part of the year during peak seasons, but eventually they might want to transfer to something that's a full-time year-round position. The idea of the bill here is to give those workers a chance to make uh, catch-up contributions for their retirement savings and be able to retire on time. So even though you do have a lot of federal employees in that position where they transfer from something seasonal to something full-time, they currently don't have the opportunity to make retirement contributions for their time spent in the temporary position. And what happened was that lawmakers said that they noticed, you know, over time, that those workers compared with those who are just in these full-time positions in government, they aren't receiving the same benefits. And over time that those employees who were previously in the temporary positions end up having to work longer than their colleagues to earn the same uh, retirement benefits. So what the bill would do is just correct that and allow for those workers to uh, make catch-up contributions and retire at the same time as their colleagues. Interesting. Okay, so where does this bill stand and how much progress has been made on it? So this bill has been around for about five years and it's reintroduced uh, every year. The first one was in 2019. This year, there is so far only a House bill and they're looking right now to try to get support on the Senate side as well. So we'll see kind of how that plays out. But there is bipartisan support For the House bill, there's four original co-sponsors, two Democrats and two Republicans. There's also a lot of support from unions and federal organizations. So, you know, this is something that, you know, I guess they're hoping we'll see to gain a little bit more traction as as time goes on. We'll have to see in the next couple of months how that plays out. All right. And another piece of legislation would change death gratuities for the civilian workforce. Tell us a little bit about the history of that and why this bill was introduced. So this one, it is called the Honoring Civil Servants Killed in the Line of Duty Act. And it's another bipartisan bill from lawmakers. This one has both House and Senate versions of the bill. And what this would do is update the benefit amounts that the survivors of civilian federal employees who die on the job, how much their survivors receive. So they would get a one-time death gratuity payment as well as a coverage for funeral expenses. Right now, if you look at the cost differentials, survivors of those who um, are in the foreign service and the military who die on duty, they receive $100,000 in a one-time payment. 
Uh, on the other hand, civilian federal workers. So, for example, law enforcement officers is a big one where this comes into play. They only receive their families only receive $10,000. So just a tenth of the cost. Uh, and those amounts have not been updated in literally decades. So the bill here would would really significantly increase the amount that those families receive and then include a cost of living adjustment every year as well so that those don't get outdated again. So, you know, there's been some support, as I said, from both Democrats and Republicans on this bill. It's been around for several years, and I think they're hoping that it will gain a little bit more traction by the end of this year as well. Yeah, if it's been around for this long, is there any progress on it or any updates uh, of note? What we saw just last week was that the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, they took up that bill and were advanced it favorably out of the committee. So that was the latest progress update. Again, as I mentioned, it has been introduced several times. So right now it's it's possible that it could be included in some year-end legislation, but we'll just have to you know, see what happens as those appropriations bills come up and things of that nature. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. So while they're at it, they decided to, hey, why don't we try and fix Social Security as well while we're talking about retirement benefits? So the quite familiar Social Security Fairness Act, it's been around for a while. What is different about this year? So, yes, you are right. This one has been around for a few decades at this point. And what this bill would do is revoke both the windfall elimination provision or WEP and the government pension offset GPO. This is something, you know, Federal News Network has uh, covered for a long time. And they're usually called referred to as uh, Social Security's evil twins that reduce the Social Security amounts that some federal retirees get. The bill has been around for a long time, basically, to try to revoke those provisions that reduce the annuities. And what's different this year, Eric, to answer your question, is that there is a very large amount of co-sponsors this year. So far, there's 298, which puts it above the 290 co-sponsor threshold, which what that means is that it can be put on the House Ways and Means Committee calendar. It could also be pushed to a floor vote. So this is something where, you know, once a bill gets enough support like that, it it can be kind of pushed forward. We haven't seen any action there yet, but there is still time. Um, I think there has been a lot of support for this and growing support, both from lawmakers and from uh, different advocacy groups over the years to to try to get those two provisions removed from law. And another bill that seems to be getting a lot of support is the one that focused on telework reform for the federal workforce. This has got a lot of uh, popularity behind it, and a lot of focus groups are are supporting it as well. Uh, What can you tell me about that one and what it would change for feds? Absolutely. So this is the uh, Telework Reform Act. Eric, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago together. And what this would do is uh, codify the definitions of telework and and remote work for federal employees and basically set some data requirements for telework. This one as well has bipartisan uh, support. So far, there's only Senate legislation on this bill. But, you know, we we both know that telework has been a very big topic for the federal workforce, for Congress. So it's interesting to see this new approach just in, in the most recent weeks here. But, well, again, it's similar to the other bills. We'll just have to wait and see what happens if it's going to be taken up or if there's going to be a, a house bill to go along with it this time. Wait and see we shall. Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman, thank you as always. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Drew's reporting on all of these topics at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, a handful of companies get an attaboy from the Secretary of State 
It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. At a ceremony earlier this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken presented five American companies, large and small, with the department's Award for Corporate Excellence. The awards recognize companies that reflect the administration's focus areas when it comes to corporate diplomacy. To learn more about this year's awards, I spoke to Special Representative for Commercial and Business Affairs at the State Department, Sarah Morgenthal. The Award for Corporate Excellence is an exciting program now in its 24th year. This is the Secretary of State's Award for Corporate Excellence. And it was actually started under Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. She had the brilliance and the wherewithal to understand the importance of the government working with the private sector and the business community in particular. And it honors U.S. companies demonstrating leadership in their overseas operations, specifically recognizing U.S. firms that uphold the highest standards of responsible business conduct and whose operational practices and decision-making exemplify American values and international best practices. And look, having a U.S. presence with the business community in these countries is good diplomacy and it's good foreign policy. These companies are our country's greatest ambassadors. They invest sustainably. They set high standards of corporate responsibility throughout their supply chains, carrying the torch for American values overseas and implementing transparent practices that respect local communities. This year, you had two categories. You can talk a little bit about that, but also tell us a little bit of how those categories are selected themselves as well. Yeah. So we actually had three categories this year. Uh, One uh, was innovation, which recognizes companies who offer solutions to solve today's challenges, such as addressing climate change and food insecurity, as well as transforming the local community. The second one was women's economic security, which honors a company's commitment to supporting women's economic security and help elevating women to become more competitive in the job market. And the third is sustainable supply chains, which celebrates a company's commitment to improve the environmental, social, and nutritional impacts of their operations and supply chains. So these themes are American themes. They are initiatives that are reflected by our administration, by the Biden administration, and American values, which we are seeing reflected in these companies that are operating overseas. All right. And so how do you take stock of, you know, companies that are doing work overseas, but are also doing work to highlight those categories that you look at? And how do you choose the winners? Perfect question. What happens is we have our diplomats of our missions around the world who work with many of these U.S. companies. And when they come across a company or companies that are going above and beyond focusing not just on profit margin, but on other good values, American values, they're able to nominate these companies. And that's essentially, you know, how they were selected. This year, we had five companies which were awarded. Three were from African countries. One was from Jordan and one was from Poland. We were very fortunate to have Ambassador Mark Brzezinski come from Poland to the ceremony, which was an added bonus because we had the company Google Poland that was selected by his post. We're speaking with Sarah Morgenthau. She is the Special Representative for Commercial and Business Affairs with the U.S. State Department. And I guess we've held off long enough. Uh, We should probably send some recognition towards those winners. Uh, What can you tell me about the winners of this year's awards? 
Thank you. And it was really exciting to be uh, with these five companies yesterday with Secretary Blinken and others. We also had many of their families join as well. So I think this really was a very, very exciting moment. We had five winners yesterday. Three were from Africa, one from Jordan, one from Poland. These were all American companies working overseas, only one large, and the others are small and medium-sized. So the first company, Avertra, is a medium-sized, Virginia-based American software company with a branch in Amman, Jordan. And it's dedicated to ensuring an equitable and equal workplace for women's employment. So they won in the women's economic security category. And, you know, it's especially important in a very male-dominated field. The second company uh, also uh, won in the women's uh, economic security category, Google Poland, which is dedicated to promoting gender equality in the workplace and supporting women in tech initiatives in Poland and in the Central and Eastern European region. So again, these are tools for diplomacy, for foreign policy, and you can sort of see the connection as I weave through you know, how we selected. The third one is a winner in innovation, and it's Contegra Biotechnology, which has pioneered Kenya's revival as a global leader in farming Iwitham, which is a climate change resistant crop and product used in sustainable organic biopesticides to grow healthier food and protect safe water worldwide. The next one is Parcel, which won in the sustainable supply chain category. And they are supporting vaccine transport in Africa through cold chain data collection and analytics at the national district and local levels in Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, Burundi, Niger, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. Um, so another really exciting company. And then the last one, also one in the sustainable supply chain category, and it is called Ampersand USA. Ampersand is Africa's first mobility energy company providing electricity and vehicles to power thousands of electric motorcycle taxis across the continent. So Rwanda-based Ampersand now serves over a thousand moto taxi drivers, including female drivers in Rwanda and Kenya, where the company expanded in 2022. So five really exciting companies in our countries around the world, truly reflecting American values. All right. And so as you went through those, it goes a lot in what the policy agenda is of the State Department. You know, you never really know what the world is going to dictate. When do you start, you know, for next year's? I'm, I know I'm already jumping ahead for you, but start. tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. So, <laughs> so you start tomorrow looking for the next year's winners, huh? Yeah, this is really an enormous effort by the State Department, by, you know, the Economic Bureau here at the State Department at working with our posts, you know, all around the world to make sure that, you know, we're really thinking through, you know, what are the the great ambassadors and the great companies uh, that, that are working. And it's part of our, you know, larger effort of this office to work closely with the business community, work closely with American companies, uh, because I said, uh, you know, they are really the tools that we need to do effective diplomacy and effective foreign policy. Sarah Morgenthau is Special Representative for Commercial and Business Affairs at the State Department. We'll post this interview and a link to more information about this year's awards at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive anywhere in the world. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come on Federal News Network, how employees can get more fulfillment out of their jobs. But first, did agencies forget how to prevent fraud during pandemic relief? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. As the tally of fraud and abuse in pandemic relief spending mounts, the Government Accountability Office has a reminder. Program managers have a list of leading practices for preventing fraud. The question becomes, why didn't they use it? Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the GAO's Director of Forensic Audits, Rebecca Shea. I guess at this point, it's fair to say we still don't really know the extent of fraudulent and improper payments under the various pandemic relief programs, do we? What's the latest sense of how bad it is? Yeah, that's true. We will never know the true extent of the fraud. But we do have some estimates at this point and some other information. For example, GAO recently released a report estimating the amount of fraud in the unemployment insurance program. And we estimated that the fraud that occurred in that program was between 100 and $135 billion. The SBA OIG has also estimated fraud in the two lead programs there, PPP and IDLE programs, and they estimate about $200 billion in fraud. And those are just two of the largest programs. And we've also been tracking some of the DOJ cases since the pandemic began. That also gives you a little bit of a sense of the scope of the problem. And at this point, there are nearly 1,400 guilty pleas or convictions and uh, about 600 more in the pipeline and, of course, many, many more under investigation at this point. I can remember when the entire federal budget was $200 billion, and this is how much (laughs) we threw away on that. But it's fair to say, too, that these were bigger than normal programs, but the rate or percentage of fraud in these cases is beyond banned for what we normally expect in programs. Yeah, that is definitely true. You know, just to give you a sense of the scope, the PPP and EIDL, the SBA programs and unemployment insurance programs, they were about $2 trillion collectively. That's a very attractive target to fraudsters, obviously. But you're right about the fact that the fraud that occurred in the pandemic is worse than what you would expect in normal operations. And and that's true for a variety of reasons. There are a number of known risk factors for fraud and the pandemic programs. They had them all. Some of them are new programs. Some of them were greatly increased funding, you know, with the um, nearly $2 trillion there. The agencies had to make quick disbursements, and they also had limited controls. Most important among those limited controls was the reliance on self-certification to determine if you get a benefit. So absolutely a much greater fraud in those programs than you would expect in normal operations because of those risk factors. Because just given the practicalities of the programs, even normally, they're pretty big. A certain amount of fraud is to be expected, but it can cost you more to stop it than you would prevent. So in general, there's a risk management or inverted pyramid type of approach to this. Fair to say? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's important to realize fraud is inevitable. Anytime you have something of value, people are going to try to get it through misrepresentation. But the important thing is to manage the risk of that strategically because it's pennies on the dollar when you try to recover them. So prevention is absolutely the goal here. And I guess you've told us why fraud was worse in these programs because of these factors present, the newness of them, the great expansion of existing programs, and the limited controls. And that's because I guess they wanted to get everything up and running fast. And unlike the relief for the financial crisis, 
back in 2008 and 2009. At least there was an apparatus set up before some of that money started flowing out. Yeah, that's right. A couple of other things were going on as well. So agencies were not prepared and not managing their fraud risk strategically prior to the pandemic. The CG, the Comptroller General, testified earlier this year that had agencies been in a better place on that, since the requirements to do that came out in 2016, they would have been better prepared to handle the pandemic. So that's one of the reasons why they weren't very well prepared. And then, as you say, the other issue of trying to get the funds out quickly and making some determinations about the controls that would or would not be in place, uh, as it's been described, lowering the guardrails. And then, again, as you mentioned, there was not that apparatus in place for the government-wide oversight analytic capability that got stood up the initial year of the pandemic. And it is going to sunset again, like the one for the, the financial crisis did, unless Congress acts to make that permanent. We're speaking with Rebecca Shea. She's director of forensic audits at the Government Accountability Office. And you testified that GAO for many years has had a reference framework for fraud prevention, some best practices or good practices for this. What are some of those? And I guess, why don't agencies use them more? First of all, tell us more about the framework. Sure. Yeah, it's um, our fraud risk framework, and it outlines 38 leading practices for strategically managing fraud risk. And it's broken down into four different components. And they align with, you know, broad themes that agencies should be covering to manage, to strategically manage the fraud risk. The first component relates to creating a culture and a structure to combat fraud. You want to have the right environment. You want to have the right organization to be able to do the things that you need to do throughout the year regardless of your environment, normal operations or emergency. The second component relates to fraud risk assessments. Many agencies still are operating without comprehensive fraud risk assessment. They aren't even aware of their risks and understanding what controls they have in place to address those risks. So a full review of what your risks are, what you have in place to manage them, the likelihood and impact, and then also what's your tolerance for risk? And will that change and how does it need to change when you're in normal operations versus steady state? And then what are the consequences of that? The third component relates to the implementing the controls that you need, implementing your fraud profile that you have developed from your fraud risk assessment. And then the last component is to evaluate and adapt that. Fraud does not stay static, right? It continues to change. The risk environment changes. So you want to make sure that the controls that you've figured you need from your fraud risk assessment are actually working as you want them to and evaluate and adapt that. Then go around in the circle. We Our visual for the fraud risk framework is a circle, and it's meant to imply that this is an ongoing process. Right. So there's really two takes that I get from what you've said. One is that if you are already oriented and sensitive to and have programs in place and think about fraud prevention, then when something big comes along, like a new program, you're already at a baseline where you can maybe scale more easily to protect yourself. That is absolutely right. And the other is you got to think like a thief and maybe pressure test your own system to see maybe I can try a fraudulent try here. I mean, the food stamp program, SNAP program has done that for years. They used to go shopping and see if they could use their card to buy beer somewhere and, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because that relates to a resource that is available through 
Department of Treasury and the CFO Council, they have years ago, after we issued our framework, they issued an anti-fraud playbook. And it breaks down all of the components and the leading practices from our framework and provides agencies with this nice set of plays for how you can implement that. And one of them is to think like a fraudster. And it helps, you know, the agencies do that, you know, think like the bad guy so that they can figure out how their systems could be broken. I know when I used to go into banks back when people went into banks and big lobbies, I used to figure, how would I rob this place? How would I get out? And where would I head if I ever wanted to do that? But I didn't take myself up on that. And (laughs) in your testimony, you actually described a couple of the fraud mechanisms, which weren't all that clever. They just did it. Yeah. And you are right about that. They weren't all that clever. And a lot of that relates to the fact that in benefit fraud, there are two key issues there. You have the eligibility and identity. On identity, are you who you say you are? And on eligibility, are you entitled to the benefit that you say you're entitled to in in the amount? And because self-attestation was accepted as the, the key control in a number of these programs, the mechanisms used were really pretty simple in a lot of cases. It was false statements and attestations. People just straight up lied. <laughs> there was document manipulation. They falsified, altered, or forged documents. There was a, you know, quite a lot of fictitious entities, stolen identities, synthetic identities, shell and shelf companies used to apply for benefits. Some got a little bit more you know, creative through collusion, use of kickbacks and incentives, and then Often, once the funds were received, they were laundered through through other mechanisms. But the mechanisms were pretty basic. Now, technology, I will admit, it did help scale up some of those simple mechanisms, you know, because people could apply many at a time and then also from anywhere in the world. And then also tips were shared, you know, on the dark web and other chat rooms. So simple mechanisms, but then scaled up through some technologies. Rebecca Shea is Director of Forensic Audits at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post this interview along with a link to the anti-fraud framework at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, how employees can get more fulfillment out of their jobs. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. From PR to paid programs, learn what marketing is working for government contractors. Federal News Network. Search Amtower Off-Center. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The company HP recently launched its first HP Work Relationship Index. It's a study that tracks and analyzes the relationship between people and their work. What it found was the relationship most employees have with their jobs is a bit on the rocks. To learn more about the study and what it could mean for future jobs, including in government, I spoke with Todd Gustafson, who is president of HP Federal. We at HP conducted a survey this past six months across the globe for about 15,000, just over 15,000 respondents. And what we wanted to measure was try to understand the relationship that workers had in both the private and public industries, what their relationship was work like, how did it matter, how did it impact their relationships at home and their productivity. And it was uh, it was quite interesting. And it, as you might expect, it varied by geography in terms of the impact. But what we discovered is on average, about 78% of the 15,000 respondents 
shared that they had a very unhealthy relationship with their work. And it was certainly more concerning than we thought. And we had a lot of data that uh, they drilled a little bit deeper than that. But we, we took that and uh, and are using it as a, a launching pad, if you will, into how technology might be an enabler to improve that work relationship. When you say unhealthy relationship, what does that mean? What does unhealthy relationship as it's defined by the report mean? At, at its core, it's about two things, uh, physical health and mental health. And so if you think about each one of those, physical health could be something as simple as not getting enough sleep because you don't feel good about your job. You don't feel good about the contributions you may be making. You may not necessarily align with the mission of your uh, of your role. So that can conduct your just your physical well-being. And then as importantly, because of that and because of the disconnect that a lot of employees have with, you know, if we think back to pre-March of 2020, the vast majority of us went to the office. We had a social outlet. We uh, we engaged with our colleagues on a very regular basis in a very, uh, if you will, work intimate relationship. All that changed, right? And as a result of that, that emotional connection that people have and the mental health that comes from that emotional connection is somewhat lacking. And I would say that's a little bit bifurcated based upon generational. If I think about uh, even at HP or our adult children, they want to go to the office. That's a social outlet for them. They uh, they want to be engaged. Where different generational may not need that same level of engagement because they get it from their spouse or their significant other, or they decide that they don't want to do that. So I think we need we've discovered that we need to meet the employees where they're at versus mandating what we think it should be. Yeah, you talked about how technology could help improve the relationship that most people have with work. And I imagine that's the reason why HP, you know, you don't usually think of HP as a human capital focused company. But what sorts of technologies did you all have in mind when it came to improving how people feel about their professions? Well, let me just take a step back on that, Eric. You know, our founders, Bill and Dave, invented what's called the HP way. And the HP Way, you know, 84 years ago was founded on giving our employees the tools and the process and the freedom to be able to engage in a way that gave them the best possible output, where they could do innovation at a scale that was never thought possible before. And as an example, we were the very first company that came out with something called FTO or Flexible Time Off, where we didn't mandate what vacations were. You took the time off as you needed, and we accommodated that. Well, when you think about it from a technology standpoint, I would suggest that there's two things that are on the present. One is, if you think about the emergence of virtual technology and the conversation as an example that you and I are having right now, and the fact that we can use uh, rich media, both voice and video, and uh, and do this in over the airways in a way that's very conducive to having a personal connection is really harmful. Um, and we do that in a way that we're dressed professionally, we're well engaged. As importantly, think about what's happening on the emergence of AI, whether it's tools like Copilot from Microsoft, as an example. What individuals used to do that might be considered somewhat menial tasks can now be accomplished with new tools that are available, that are available on the edge. You can do it on your notebook, your desktop, even your phone, in a way that allows, whether you're in the government or in uh, private industry, allows you to contribute at a much greater level and let tools and technology do more of the menial tasks at work. So 
I think our relationship's going to change, not just in terms of who we engage with and what our leadership looks like, but also those tools and those processes that allow us to be more fulfilled. I'm glad at least the top half of me looks professional. <laughs> We're speaking with Todd Gustafson. He's the president of HB Federal and the head of the U.S. public sector. So on the public sector side of things, what could federal agency managers take away from this report and, you know, in making decisions about how to keep their workforce engaged? You know, we have engagement scores that come out every year from the federal government. They usually, you know, stay about the same and the same agencies that have problems with in the past continue to still have issues with it. What do you think they could take away from this? You know, the thing that I learned the most, I've been with HP for 35 years, Eric, and I, I've seen it quite a lot over those years. And what I would tell you is what hasn't changed and what is currently important from a leadership standpoint is emotional engagement, emotional engagement with your peers, with your colleagues, and with your leadership. And I'll give you just a couple of different examples that I would offer as a suggestion. Is One is that you regularly communicate your shared principles, what you're about, what your organization is about, what is your mission, how does it impact your constituents. If you work at the Department of Veterans Affairs, you think about you know some of our most cherished assets in our country, uh, folks that gave their lives to service of our country. You can absolutely align your mission with the folks that you're serving. And the more that you align in those goals, as an example in the BA, is a powerful metaphor to gathering everyone together on, on a singular focus. The second thing that I would say is, when you think about culture of work, we're working in this right now at HP every year. Our fiscal year begins on November 1st, and we're reaffirming what we do, why we do it, and what's the outcome of that. And we don't assume that everyone knows that because we're going through a transformational. You know, we have turnover in a workforce. We have different generations, people uh, joining, people retiring. And so that continuous information. And then I'll just share one personal little tidbit that I do every week, every Monday morning at nine o'clock. I, I record a, vi a, a video every morning that is distributed to the entire organization, which is called Top of Mind Monday. And it is a five-minute video on what's top of mind for me. It gets shared broadly. Uh, it has uh, from top to bottom. And it's a really powerful way that every week I communicate with the broad organization on everything. And it's virtually unfiltered. And having that proximity engagement with the team is really important. Yeah. It, so it seems as if a mission-focused approach is what agencies could do and could utilize what sorts of technologies are out there for agencies now that they could, you know, make their own videos like that or, <laughs> you know, that weren't available even, you know, just a few years ago, you know, post the way COVID changed the world. It's not hot at all. I have my assistant every Monday morning. We have a call schedule. We have a Teams meeting. She, uh, she hits record and I am prepared. It's, uh, it's, not uh, necessarily the idea is prepared, but the content is not prepared. And I and it's only a five-minute discussion, perhaps seven minutes on some occasions, but it's so simple. And then I, I link it on a team site and people watch it. And what's really interesting in HP with a, a fairly large organization is that we have participation on any given, uh, any given week averaging around 85% of the total population. And what's what matters about it is that rich media that combines voice and video and inflection of 
of how we're presenting and in a way that they consume it when they want to consume it, as opposed to having to be at a specific spot. It's really simple, really powerful. Could this change, you know, in the future? And I'm asking you to kind of look into the future here for me, but will that mean that the top, top level of folks in charge are looking for, you know, those middle managers that are a little bit more engaging and, you know, someone like yourself who obviously has a lot of passion and is, you know, able to not just, you know, say you do this and then kind of shut off and, you know, just sink into their inbox for a while. You know, I think it's important in leadership where you're at the high, whether you're a CEO or secretary or department head or an individual contributor that we bring the ropes all the way to the ground in terms of our engagement. And I reference this as what I call, Eric calls, sprinkles of magic, to find a way that you can reach out to someone in your organization and have a conversation with them, whether it's individually or in a very small group where you use the two ears that you were given and you listen. Listen is such a is such an amazing tool to be able to engage and give your teams the opportunity to share what they have to say. Now, that may not always change the outcomes, but I think what people, what matters most to people is that they have a voice that they're listened to, that they have an opportunity to contribute. And if, if leaders can find a way to spread that sprinkles of magic throughout their team, you'll be really highly amazed at what the outcomes of those are. That's Todd Gustafson, president of HP Federal. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. But first, the Homeland Security Department has been preparing for the new executive order on artificial intelligence President Joe Biden signed earlier this week for the better part of the last year. One big step came last month when Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas named Eric Heisen, the agency's chief information officer, as the first chief AI officer. Heisen tells executive editor Jason Miller at the ELC 2023 conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania yesterday about why this change and several new policies are part of how DHS is preparing for AI today and in the future. I expect that uh, over time, the percentage of IT that we manage at DHS, that any uh, large uh, enterprise manages that uses AI will only grow and will approach uh, 100% in various forms. And so uh, effectively and responsibly leveraging AI is going to become a critical part of any IT organization uh, moving forward. And so we are focused on um, being able to build out procedures that ensure that our use of AI across DHS is safe, ethical, responsible, and effective, that we are rigorously testing to ensure that our uses of AI do not demonstrate unintended bias, uh, and that our uh, AI use is explainable to the people uh, that we serve. That's something that we're doing in close partnership with our Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, our Privacy Office, uh, our General Counsel, and many others across the department. And uh, we are doing that in a uh, methodical way. A couple of weeks ago, we released two key foundational policies. The first was a policy statement on our overall principles for responsible AI use from the secretary that will underpin all of our work in this space. And then we are going to be following up on that with different policies that implement those principles for specific types of AI. So the first one uh, of those that we released concurrently was on our use of facial recognition and face matching. 
and we set out uh, ex- very clear procedures for testing uses of facial recognition before we deploy them that include uh, rigorous testing against unintended bias uh, and also put in place some operational limitations, such as that we are not going to use facial recognition matches as the sole basis for denying a benefit or taking a law enforcement action. Uh, and so we're going through a similar process now for generative AI and for other types of AI technologies to ensure that we are put uh, going to be uh, using them responsibly across DHS. When you talk about generative AI, I know that has been a big issue looking across government. Several agencies have put out policies that said, don't use it until further notice. Others said, use it very judiciously. How are you looking at this for now? I know it's still in, in, in the works, but maybe from a high level. I view, and I think across DHS, we view that we need to give our employees the tools they need to do their jobs. Our workforce is incredibly talented, incredibly passionate, and the workload that we have across DHS only gets larger every single day. Uh, When you look over the last several years, the number of new challenges that our workforce has taken on uh, is truly incredible. And so when we see a technology that has the potential to make our workforce more productive, we're going to uh, seize that. Uh, But we're going to do that in a uh, deliberate and appropriate way. So uh, we're still finalizing our, our exact policies, but they will look like what is encouraged in President Biden's executive order that was recently signed that talks about the importance of uh, training for our workforce uh, on how to use AI systems uh, that talks about policies and procedures around what information you can and can't put into these systems and then ensuring uh, appropriate human review of those outputs. I know more is coming on that, so we will obviously follow up when when the the time is right. Let's take a bigger step back. We know that the AI executive order came out just recently, and there was a fact sheet put out by DHS about their input that were there, some of the work you'll be doing to help support the implementation. That falls to you, I'm sure, more plates to spin, if you will. What are some of those priorities as you're looking at the implementation? What's the role DHS will play around the EO? We have two primary roles uh, around AI at the department. Uh, The first is how we will harness AI to transform our own operations. Uh, This is something that Secretary Mayorkas is incredibly passionate about. And he was playing around with uh, some of these new AI tools before I even got my hands on them and uh, has been very eager to see us fully leverage the technology to to improve everything from how we uh, keep uh, fentanyl and other dangerous drugs out of the country to how we uh, streamline getting disaster assistance to survivors that need it. And, and much, much more. So there is uh, a major focus through our AI task force that I co-chair along with our Undersecretary for Science and Technology, Dmitry Kuznetsov, on identifying and accelerating critical uses of AI to support our mission. And then our second role in this space is promoting and ensuring nationwide AI safety and security. We have a lot of work that we've been charged with under the executive order, including partnering with critical infrastructure to ensure that their use of AI is responsible and secure. Uh, That will involve standing up a new AI safety and security board that builds off the tremendous success that our um, cyber safety review board uh, has had uh, in the last couple of years. It also involves ensuring that 
AI cannot be used to generate threat information on weapons of mass destruction or bioweapons, work that makes it even more critical that our Office of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction is reauthorized by Congress uh, urgently, and ensuring that AI cannot be used to generate child sexual abuse material and other uh, information that threatens homeland security. So we'll be partnering with industry uh, and experts to uh, advance those discussions. Uh, and then finally, it looks at promoting cybersecurity in the AI space uh, overall, work that extends uh, what CISA has uh, been doing incredibly well uh, since it stood up, uh, and uh, which Director Easterly is, uh, I believe, today on her way out to uh, London to discuss as part of the uh, U.S. delegation to the AI Safety Summit there. The training of the workforce piece, let me start there, because no matter how good the tools are, as you know, if you can't use them well, it doesn't matter. What are some of those steps you have been or are planning to take around ensuring the workforce has some basic knowledge? You heard Guy Cavallo from OPM say he, you know, at the very least, he said, everyone take the 101 course. Imagine you're doing something similar. We're looking at AI training for our workforce in two ways. The first is how we train our IT professionals uh, across the department are over 5,000 throughout DHS to uh, be able to build skills in AI, data science, and related fields to manage software acquisitions and other complex work in this space. And that'll be done as part of the new uh, IT academy that we are standing up across DHS. The second is around AI literacy for the entire DHS workforce. So we are uh, still in the early stages, but looking to offer AI literacy training to every DHS employee so that they can understand how to use AI systems effectively. Uh, They can understand risks posed by uh, unintended bias or hallucinations uh, and know uh, how they should be thinking about using the outputs from AI in their work. Tell me just a little bit more about the uh, new IT Academy you're standing up. It's been a uh, focus of our uh, DHS CIO council over the last 18 months that w- where we are looking to build out more programming uh, for our entire IT workforce to develop new skills. We're looking at uh, three different areas. The first is that uh, early next year we'll be rolling out a standard new hire orientation program for all new IT employees anywhere at DHS. Uh, this is something that uh, is actually an idea that I have, I've stolen from our, our CFO, Stacey Marcotte, who runs this for all new CFO employees in the department. Uh, it helps build from early on a sense of cohesion among the workforce. The second is that we are uh, looking at a standardizing an entry-level program that's uh, a part of our uh, DHS cybersecurity service or cyber talent management system to uh, be able to have a standard curriculum for uh, entry-level employees to learn about different IT fields and uh, be able to uh, start their careers off impactfully at the department. And then finally, we're looking at ongoing educational programs uh, and offerings for all employees to build new skills in fields like AI and data science, customer experience and design, and the like. That's Eric Heisen, who is the Homeland Security Department's Chief Information Officer and Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer, speaking with Federal News Network Executive Editor Jason Miller. You can find more of Jason's reporting on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, X, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.